It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. This show brought to you by Constellation Media. Hello and welcome. This is episode 10 of the Urban Astronomer Podcast, second season. And it's time for another Science Explainy Bit. Happily, it's one of those where I managed to squeeze two questions in, and I think they're both great. The first one asked by Carneal Smolder many years ago, is about spaceships firing guns in space, and I answer it with some basic Newtonian physics. The second is from Sibusiso Biela, who wanted to know why Venus is so hot. As it turns out, both of these guys already have an urban astronomer connection. I interviewed Carneal many years ago, back when we were just a blog, uh, after he observed Venus in daytime, and he got a photo which he shared with me. Sibusiso, meanwhile, is a science journalist whom I interviewed back in season one. I'll link back to both their interviews in the show notes. But before we get to the science explaining bits, here is a quick shout out to my loyal patrons, Catherine, Peter, Frank Tippin, and George Palmer, some of the nicest people I've ever met. In exchange for their support, they get special red carpet treatment. If you would like the red carpet treatment, all you need to do is click one of the Patreon links on the urban-astronomer.com website and make a monthly pledge. It doesn't have to be a large amount, but it all adds up. Anyway, here is the first explainy bit. So, as an openly astronomical science communicator... I get asked a lot of questions by people in all walks of life, which is why I do these science explainy bits. People are curious about things. They have questions but aren't prepared to spend 10 years of their lives going to school to get a degree, complete a PhD and find an academic job. They just want an answer so that they can get back to their lives and hopefully that's what I'm providing. Now, there are some basic questions that come up all the time and I've already answered some of them in this series. But what really makes it fun are the questions that I never expected to get, the ones of the interesting contexts and applications. Take this one, which I was asked by Carneal Smolder back in 2013. At the time, he had a friend who was writing a video game, which involved space combat. He wanted to know, if a spaceship shoots its guns backwards in space, what happens? How differently do space guns and space bullets behave from what we're used to here on Earth? I wrote a long, rambling answer on the Open Astronomer website, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But it was such a fun topic that I would like to take another look and share it with you. So, where to start? Well, as with everything in life, the key to answering, the basic information that you need to frame the question properly, can be found in an introductory physics textbook. And you need to start by understanding the difference between speed and velocity. In common language, speed means how fast you are going, while velocity means the same thing, but it sounds fancier. But common language has got it wrong, because in physics, the two are related, but different. Speed is a scalar quantity, while velocity is a vector. Okay, I've lost you. I need to re-examine my assumption that everybody listening to me right now has university education, so let me break this down a bit further. Scalars are simple numbers. They're just an amount. 
like weight or length or temperature. Vectors are similar, but they measure more information about the thing that you're looking at, usually directions. So if I'm in my car driving off into the sunset, my speed might be 100 kilometers per hour, but my velocity is 100 kilometers per hour west. If I turn around and come home, my speed is still 100 kilometers per hour, but my velocity is now different. It's 100 kilometers per hour east. Now, east and west are hard to do sums with, so we can also just pick a direction as being normal and then say that my velocity when heading west was 100 kilometers per hour and my velocity heading east was minus 100 kilometers per hour. So long as we're looking at a simple one-dimensional case like this where everything is moving on the same straight line, then east and west or positive and negative are just two different ways of saying the same thing. Now, something else to consider when thinking about movements is what you're measuring relative to. What is your frame of reference? Common sense, which is based on life on the surface of a large rocky planet with a thick atmosphere, doesn't know how to deal with that question. Life on Earth gives us a natural frame of reference that we use all the time, the ground. From our perspective, it is a solid, unmoving thing, and we perceive all motion relative to the ground. So when we measure the speed of a car or an Olympic sprinter or whatever, we're usually tracking how far they travel along the ground and completely ignore the fact that the ground itself is racing through space at tens of thousands of kilometers per hour. Our frame of reference is the Earth, and everything else gets measured against that. Pilots are probably nodding and smiling at this point because they are already familiar with this concept. They measure two different speeds for their aircraft. Ground speed, which is what we've just been talking about, and airspeed, which is their speed relative to the air around them. And if there is a wind blowing, then these speeds will be different. Airspeed is important because it's the movement of a wing through the air that creates lift. So it's the airspeed that has to be high enough for the plane to not fall out of the sky. But think about another example. You've got the family in the car and you're cruising on the highway to wherever it is that you're going. The kids are in the back and they are tossing a ball to one another. Uh, sorry, I just imagine being the driver in the car with kids throwing things around and I realize now what a terrible example that is. But yeah, let's work with it. So pretend that this is somehow not freaking the driver out and that everybody is calm and relaxed. So kid A gently tosses the ball to kid B and the ball travels one meter in about half a second. So that means it's traveling at two meters per second, except if you're watching from outside the car, you see the car barreling past at 100 kilometers per hour and the ball inside moving very slightly faster than that as it moves from one side of the car to the other. So which of these speeds is right? Well, they both are, because each speed is measured to a different frame of reference. The kids are sitting still inside the car, and the car itself is their frame of reference, while you are standing on the side of the road using the Earth as your frame of reference. Now, this all probably sounds very pedantic, the sort of thing that people philosophize about over too many drinks. But if you're trying to make any kinds of predictions about things moving through space, you quickly realize how important it all actually is. So speaking of real-life situations, let's now hop aboard our battlecruiser in deep space, about to start some live firing exercises. For our chosen frame of reference, we will use a nearby star, and we begin with our starship floating steady in space relative to that star. For the sake of this thought experiment, and in the grand tradition of physics, we'll simplify things by ignoring gravity and any other confounding factors. 
So we have a stationary starship, and this ship has one big gun on a turret, which can rotate to shoot a solid slug of depleted uranium in any direction at a speed of 2,000 meters per second, or 7,200 kilometers per hour, or something around about 4,000 miles an hour. Now, I have no idea how far such a projectile would actually need to be in a real space battle. It's not like we have actual experience on which to base real-life space warfare strategies and tactics, but it's a nice round number to work with. So we've got our starship parked in something that looks stationary, and we've got a big gun. So our first firing exercise, we point that gun forward and we shoot it. The bullet flies out at 2,000 meters per second, as expected. We also arbitrarily chose our coordinate system so that the velocity is also 2,000 meters per second. Now in space, you're totally free to do that, because there is no single central point that you're forced to base anything on. You just choose your own frame of reference and work from there. So we point the gun backwards and we shoot again. This second projectile also has a speed of 2,000 meters per second. But now we can't mess with coordinates anymore. We already chose them, and if we want our previous measurements to mean anything, we have to keep things unchanged. So our backwards bullet has a speed of 2,000 meters per second, but a velocity of negative 2,000 meters per second. Now hopefully that makes sense, because we're still fairly close to what common sense things should happen. So, let's begin our second round of firing tests. But before we warm up the gun, we first start moving forward. We fire up our engines until the starship is coasting forward at 1,000 meters per second. We then fire the guns just like before, once ahead and once to the rear. The forward bullet still has a speed of 2,000 meters per second relative to the ship, but that's not what a bystander sees. The bullet was fired from a moving platform, our starship, so its speed, as measured from a stationary point of view, is 2,000 meters per second plus the 1,000 meters per second that the ship had. From our point of view, the bullet is flying through space at 3,000 meters per second, and the second bullet, well, it's in the opposite direction, so that now the sum is negative 2,000 meters per second plus 1,000 meters per second, which gives us minus 1,000 meters per second. Round three. We now accelerate the ship further till it's traveling at 2,000 meters per second. Now when we fire the gun forward, the bullet has its relative velocity of 2,000 meters per second plus the ship's velocity of 2,000 meters per second. And from our stationary standpoint, that bullet is now rocketing along at 4,000 meters per second. Meanwhile, the bullet fired backwards is left stationary in space with the spaceship receding from it at 2,000 meters per second. But a real starship would be able to fly much faster than that. So let's speed it up to, say, oh, 2 million meters per second, which is unbelievably fast by human standards, but still such a small fraction of the speed of light that relativistic effects aren't really important for our demonstration. We fire again. The forward-fired bullet now has a velocity of 2 million and 2,000 meters per second, and the backwards-firing bullet has a velocity of 1,998,000 meters per second backwards, which is pretty weird, but despite the size of those numbers, the bullets are always traveling at a velocity of 2,000 meters per second relative to the starship. So the numbers might be surprising, but I imagine that most people won't be surprised at all by the basic principle here. 
So now, if you've mastered high school maths and you have a calculator handy, we can start working out what happens if the gun shoots at an angle or sideways. And we do this by going back to vectors. Last time we were working in one single dimension with all movements limited to a straight line. You're either moving forwards or backwards with no other options. But if you want to work in two dimensions, where there is such a thing as left and right, or where the gun could be aimed at, say, 30 degrees east, then it can get much more complicated. The good news, though, is that you can make it simple again by breaking each 2D value down into a set of one-dimensional values. Think about when you draw a graph in high school geometry. You can either draw a dot and say it's 5 centimeters away from the origin at a 30-degree angle, which is how we often describe in real life, or you can use a coordinate system to say that it's at 4, 3, meaning that it's 4 centimeters along the x-axis and 3 centimeters up along the y-axis. So we take each and every measurement, each speed and position, and we split them into x and y components. We then do our adding and subtracting to work out what the speeds are in each of those two component directions, and then we combine it all back up together again to get the final values. You end up using a lot of the Pythagoras theorem and a bit of trigonometry, but it's all well within the reach of high school maths. If you want to do it in three dimensions, well, exact same principle. Break it down into X, Y, and Z components. You even carry on using the exact same formula. You've got to do more individual sums, but they're all the same basic ones. So, knowing this, what actually happens to our bullets coming from our spaceship? Well, same ship, same gun that can be aimed in any direction. The ship is stationary, fires one bullet forwards, one at a 45 degree angle to the front's left, one to the left, one to the right, and one backwards. The forward bullet is moving at 2,000 meters per second in the x-axis and 0 meters per second in the y-axis. The angled bullet is moving at 1,414 meters per second in the x-axis and 1,414 meters per second in the y-axis. And you can work this out yourself with Pythagoras. You'll do the sums, uh, and if you combine them again, you'll find that the speed still comes to 2,000 meters per second. The left-fired bullet moves at 0 meters per second in x and 2,000 meters per second in the y-axis, and the right bullet moves at 0 meters per second in the x-axis and negative 2,000 meters per second in the y-axis. The back bullet moves at negative 2,000 meters per second in the x and 0 meters per second in y-axis. And if we start the ship moving, we work out what happens in exactly the same way as before. All that's different is that we add up two sets of numbers. Or three, if you're using three dimensions, but this is a science fiction question, and science fiction almost never remembers that there is a third dimension, so we can ignore that. So our ship moving forward at 1,000 meters per second, the forward bullet now does 3,000 meters per second in X and zero in Y. The angled bullet does 2,141 meters per second in X and 1,414 in Y. The left bullet does 1,000 meters per second in X and 2,000 meters per second in Y, and so on and so on. Now, what I find most interesting here is that while the maths might trip people up, most people intuitively understand this. I mean, I'm not saying that I could pull some random person off the street and ask them what is the velocity of our diagonal bullets and expect to get a decent answer from them. But the basic principle that speeds that up is already built into our brains, right? Just look at any cricket or baseball player throwing the ball for an out while running. They might not be whipping out a calculator to work out relative velocities, but their brain is doing all that maths anyway, unconsciously, and then directing their muscles to launch the ball correctly. In fact, that brain of theirs is doing significantly more than what we've talked about because it's also doing calculus to deal with the gravity that we ignored, which causes the ball to curve. 
and then find, figuring out how high to angle the throw to compensate for it. Now, it takes a bit of practice for anyone to get good at this, but we've all got the basic circuitry already built in to make it possible. And whether we're talking about a ball in a field or a high mass projectile launched explosively in a microgravity environment, it's the same universal laws of physics that apply each time. For centuries, Venus was revered as the most beautiful, special planet. Its exceptional white brightness and the special track that it followed through the sky, never getting too far from the sun and leaving it only ever visible in the early evenings or mornings, might be why it was associated with the Roman god Venus, who was based on the Greek god Aphrodite. Today, we think of them as the goddess of love, but the ancient civilizations of Greece and Rome were a lot less coy about these things, and it's it's probably more accurate to call her a goddess of sex and fertility. She was served by priestesses and temple virgins, although those words have changed their meaning somewhat. They were young and unmarried, sure, but they also worked as temple prostitutes, quite different from what we think of as religious behavior today. The nature of her followers and the rituals they performed reflected the personality that she was supposed to have. As you might know, the gods of Olympus were a wild, nasty, dangerous bunch. Pretty much all of them were rapists and murderers, and that included Venus. Still, whatever her flaws, she was supposed to be the absolute peak of physical beauty and desirability. And her husband Vulcan, like an idiot, made her a magic girdle, which would make her literally irresistible to whomever she took an interest in. And she caused quite a few major problems by learning it out to other gods and mortals. But we're getting sidetracked here. So, given this mythological and cultural knowledge about Venus and the scant scientific information that was available up until the mid-20th century, we didn't really have a very accurate picture of the, of the world. Humans always knew Venus was there, of course, since it's the single brightest light in the entire sky, after the sun and moon, and it moves visibly over the course of its year, swinging away from the sun, then pulling back, and changing from the morning sky to the evening sky over the months. Now, once Galileo and Kepler had figured out how the planets moved, astronomers could work out how far it was orbiting from the sun, and then Newton gave us the tools to calculate its mass. Galileo's telescopes showed that it had phases, like the moon, showing crescents, quarters, gibbous and full aspects, and we knew that it didn't have a moon of its own, but that was pretty much it. Even looking through the best giant telescopes of the early 20th century, it was just a bright, white, featureless orb. The 20th century brought some new observation techniques that started to reveal a bit more information. Ultraviolet cameras showed that it had different layers of clouds which hit the surface. Radar revealed its rate of rotation, its size beneath the clouds, and the presence of some geographical features like mountains and valleys. But it wasn't until radio telescopes started looking at it in the microwave band that we saw that it was very, very hot. But up until then, all the information we had suggested that Earth and Venus were basically the same. Earth was a little bit bigger and more massive, but not by much. Both planets had a lot of cloud in their skies, although Venus is permanently blanketed, while parts of Earth are quite famous for their sunny days. Venus is a little bit closer to the sun and has a shorter year, so going by those days, the two planets seemed like twins, or close sisters at least. And that meant that it was generally assumed that Venus was a warm, temperate, wet world with jungles and oceans. Science fiction authors usually imagined a planet full of lush jungles, peopled by exotic kingdoms, ruled by basically human-shaped queens and harassed by barbarian hordes, all very romantic and absolutely influenced by previous cultural knowledge. So 
Those microwave observations must have been a bit of a shock. According to a paper published in 1958 by Mayer, McCullough and Sloniker, the surface temperature of Venus was somewhere around 600 kelvins, with a wide margin of error. Later observations by robotic spacecraft would peg the temperature even higher. In the late 60s and early 70s, a young researcher called Carl Sagan did a lot of work to try and work out if these measurements were correct, and if so, how it could possibly be true that Venus, not so far from Earth, could be hot enough to melt lead. The answer was what we now call the greenhouse effect. In short, Venus has a deep atmosphere made mostly of carbon dioxide. It's thick and dense enough that the surface pressure is more like what you would find at the bottom of Earth's oceans. So it acts as a very efficient blanket around the planet. It's basically opaque to thermal radiation, but shorter wavelengths can penetrate deeper down. Those warm the ground and the clouds, which then radiate out infrared radiation, just like every other object in the universe. But gases like carbon dioxide, water vapor, methane and others are opaque to infrared light, meaning it doesn't pass through them the way visible light passes through air, but they're absorbed and blocked instead. This warms up the gas, and all that heat ends up trapped within the atmosphere. So energy comes in, but it doesn't come out. Eventually you reach an equilibrium where the temperature is high enough that it radiates enough infrared radiation to start balancing out the incoming shorter wavelength light and the temperature stops climbing. On Earth, this equilibrium had been stable for thousands of years and our ecosystems have adjusted and optimized to suit those temperatures. But as we increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the equilibrium temperature rises and this is the climate change that we've all gotten so worried about. On Venus, with its atmosphere of almost 100% carbon dioxide, that equilibrium temperature is hot enough to melt lead. It's a weird, tragic fact that, despite the science having been established decades ago, with researchers as far back as the 19th century worrying about the climate effects of increased carbon emissions from the rapidly industrialising world that they lived in, there's still somehow controversy about whether it's real or not. Now, actual scientists, people with educations who know how to evaluate the evidence, they're almost unanimous in their acceptance of the reality of anthropogenic climate change caused by the changing of the balance of gases in our atmosphere. There are exceptions, of course, but then there are scientists working in geology departments who still believe the Earth to be 6,000 years old, so we really shouldn't read too much into that. Even among that small group of dissenters, the vast majority are specialists in areas that have very little to do with climatology or physics. So they are not the problem. The problem comes from outside the world of science, politicians and business people with vested interests in the energy industry, people who make enormous amounts of money from oil, coal and natural gas, or the infrastructure and machinery that burns them. They've done such a successful job of stirring confusion and spreading denialist propaganda that a Google search I did just a few hours ago trying to identify early climate change resources returned more than 50% denialist articles. Interesting, the tone of those articles has changed from the last time I looked a few years back. It used to be that somebody wishing to protect the fossil fuel industry would try to cast doubt on the science, trying to reinterpret temperature measurements or show that there was no warming happening at all. When that failed, they changed tactics to agreeing that the climate is changing, but then offering alternative theories as to why that might be that have nothing to do with human beings. For example, claiming that volcanoes are the real culprits and that humans are really insignificant. And now they're simply lying, inventing, inventing sciences to are supposed to have invented the whole thing and have now apparently confessed that it was all a hoax. Anyway, climate change is real, 
And we know how it works because we've seen what happened to Venus. Venus is basically the medieval interpretation of hell, minus the demons. It's hot. Carbon dioxide is to blame. Literally no one on Earth disputes this. It's somehow only a mystery when we try to apply the same science to Earth. So, there you have it. Two science explaining bits packed into a single episode. I hope you enjoyed them, because I'm going to keep making them. If you did like it, you should totally play them for a friend. If you've got questions of your own, feel free to ask me, and I'll record an answer for you. Technically, only high-level patrons get to make special episode requests, but the Science Explainly bits live and die off listener feedback, so I'm keeping those open to anybody who is interested. Just send your questions to my email address at podcast at urban-astronomer.com or to my Twitter at uastronomer. That's the letter U-A-S-T-R-O-N-O-M-E-R. Now, since I'm here asking for stuff, I might as well go all the way and ask for your support. You can help me out by pledging donations on Patreon, obviously, or you can recommend the Urban Astronomer podcast to a friend. Most people have space fans somewhere among their friends and family, and if you know who yours are, then I'm sure they'd probably appreciate it if you could share a subscribe link with them. Otherwise, I'd love to know what everybody thinks about the season so far. If you have any feedback or strong feelings about it, let me know by emailing me as podcast at urban-astronomer.com. If it's an interesting one, or if you have any corrections or commentary on previous episodes, I'll probably read it out on the air. Incidentally, I am still trying to build up an audience on the Flick app. Flick is a new podcast-focused social media app which you can download for free onto your device. If you can't find it, just click the icon on the sidebar of urban-astronomer.com and use the join code urbanastronomer, one word, no spaces. I hope to see you there. Anyway, that's all we have time for today. Next episode is the penultimate in this season and features the final interview of the season. Our guest is Nicole Thomas, who was supposed to be in episode 10 before the technology gods turned their backs on me. It's a fresh new interview, a second take after the first recording turned out to be unusable. So you know it's going to be extra good because we've had practice. Tune in on the 19th of November. Until then, though, have a great two weeks, and I hope you get some clear skies before the rainy season arrives. Cheers. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the three. 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.